Well, thank you. I feel appreciated. Thank you very much. Uh, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> Sorry. If it, it's okay. Don't worry. God won't give you more than you can handle. The, it, it, I'm referring to a couple of statements that we've looked at uh, this month, things that we think God said, but he actually really didn't say. And uh, the first week, we looked at God won't give you more than you can handle. Second week, we looked at everything happens for a reason. Third week, last week, we said it doesn't matter what you do as long as you're sincere. And now we're in week four, and we're going to look at it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe. The whole concept, again, for this series comes from the Genesis story where God created uh, heaven and earth and created humanity and everything in the, in the world and the universe and everything was functioning the way it ought to have been functioning, the way he intended. People were walking, uh, Adam and Eve were walking in a peaceful, harmonious relationship with God and uh, God gave them the earth, the garden to manage and he gave them one directive, and, the, and God said, don't eat from the tree uh, in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from any other tree, but don't eat from this particular tree. And I mentioned last week that the name Adam uh, is, the Hebrew language behind that is Adam, which is humanity. And in some ways, I think when we read the story of Genesis, it's not only a story about Adam, but it's a story about uh, every one of us that this is a story that is repeated over and over again uh, through history. And we read that the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the fruit? You must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden. And the tactic of the enemy is to bring a, uh, something that God said and present it as a bit of a half-truth. And, and so when he comes to deceive us, it's often not something that's radically different than what God is telling us. It's, it's often something that has been twisted just a little bit. It sounds, it sounds a lot like something God did say. Or it sounds a lot like something God would say. And so we get tempted into thinking, man, this is true. And often it's a mix of a truth and a lie. And so obviously God didn't say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden. He said you can't eat from the one tree in the garden. He said you can freely eat from any of the trees in the garden, Adam and Eve. Uh, and then the serpent came and twisted it to say you can't eat from any of them. And so it was at this point that Adam and Eve began to doubt what God had said. And even if they didn't doubt what God had said, they doubted that uh, God was completely truthful in what he said, that he had their best interest in mind. They weren't sure about that. And so what are the ways that we kind of get pulled into these half-truths, these things that create doubt in our minds. And if we follow these thoughts long enough, I think it brings us on a trajectory uh, that we didn't intend. And just like Adam and Eve, when they started following this trajectory, they found themselves outside of the garden, outside of God's design, God's will for their lives. And so what we believe about God is critically important. So this morning we're looking at, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe. Any of you guys heard anything like this? It's okay, it doesn't matter what you believe. All roads lead to God. All religions lead to God. 
And, and, and this is, this is uh, something that I've heard over and over and over again. And I just want to give a little bit of a history lesson on why I think this idea is so prevalent today in our culture. In the 16th and 19th century, we have something that is often referred to as modernism. And so in, in, in the modern, uh, in that modern time frame, we had the Enlightenment, we had the Industrial Revolution, we had a bunch of significant things that have happened in history. And so what happened at this time is uh, people began to uh, believe that anything was possible, that, that truth, uh, truth was knowable, right? We, we, we discovered science, we discovered how the, the way the world works, and there was kind of no end in sight of, of where our own intellect and understanding could bring us. We, in the Industrial Revolution, we started developing ways of functioning. We, we developed machinery. We developed systems. We developed ways to accomplish things at a rate and a level and a capacity that we've never been able to do things at all in the history of the world. And so in the modern world, this belief or this thought that everything was knowable, anything was doable, that truth uh, was absolute and we needed to just figure out and find out what it was, these were all things that were kind of associated with the modern era. But what happened was over time, what was wrong with the world didn't necessarily get fixed in the modern world. We still had disease. We still had poverty. We still had famine. We still had, uh, we still had tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes. People still died. And if we could figure out one disease, another disease would pop up. And so what happened over time after modernity, as we move away from the 19th century, we, we enter into post-modernity where people began to doubt if there was actually absolute truth. Maybe we can't conquer as easily as we could. Maybe not everything is knowable. And so in the postmodern era where we have... Uh, grown up in, there's an increased belief in buying that truth is unknowable, that truth is relative. And with that comes other beliefs such as it doesn't matter what you believe then because truth is relative. There's kind of nuggets of truth out there in various thoughts and philosophies and religions and Christianity is just one of many places where you could find truth, but on the whole, truth is unknowable. And so we had this move from modernism to postmodernism, from absolute truth to relative truth, from certainty to uncertainty. And this has had a drastic effect on uh, Christianity. And it's kind of moved us towards a, what. I would like to call a little bit of a, relig a religious buffet. Anybody like buffets here? I'm a big buffet fan. You know, when we did a road trip a few years ago, we went all the way down to the West Coast, and uh, money was tight because we spent 31 days on the road. And uh, so we, we spend a lot of time in two places, Costco, because our whole family could eat for $12. Uh, it was amazing. Poutine for days. Uh, or the, the hot dog and the Coke deal. Come on, you can't, you can't beat that. And so to change it up, then we go to buffets where we could like store up multiple meals at one time. And, uh, and we do buffets okay here, but in the States, 
they do buffets real good. Uh, and there's just tons and tons of food. None of it's good for you. Uh, but we would, just, we would just load up on the buffets. 30 days of it. And we approach religion often like a, a buffet. We, we kind of go and don't know exactly what we want. And we look, hey, I like that. I, like that. I don't like that. I'm not going to pick that. That looks like it's going to give me a tummy ache. I'm not going to have that. I probably had too much of that, but it was really good, so I'm going to go back for seconds and thirds. And we, we treat religion, we treat truth this way. And I love a good buffet, don't get me wrong, but a buffet does not work when it comes to faith. Not all religions are the same. Not all religions proclaim the same thing. You know, Buddhism has no God. There's no final type of existence. They believe in countless rebirths, and eventually the whole idea is to end the cycle of rebirth. You know, Hinduism has impersonal, an impersonal God approached through deities, statues, idols. And Buddhism and Hinduism don't offer forgiveness of sins or any help, only the idea of karma, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Do good things and good things happen. Do bad things and bad things happen. In Islam, they worship Allah. There's no secondary gods. The one God, total ban on idols. Your standing with God depends on your religious devotion to him. New Age doesn't have a personal God. It just has this idea of higher consciousness being one uh, with the universe, trying to live in harmony with the universe. And then we have Christianity, who believes in a personal God, that this God was exposed to us through the love of God's Son, Jesus, offers forgiveness for sins not based on our merit or our goodness, but based on who uh, God is. And so in our postmodern world, we, we kind of come to this religious buffet tale. We're like, I, just, I want a little bit of everything. But the, the, the reality is that there's counter-truths that are happening here. And this morning, I want to briefly look at two ways that Christians respond to the religious buffet. The first way is something referred to as universalism. And so universalism is the, is the belief that all people will be saved, that all people go to heaven when they die. Regardless of what you might believe, all people have the same fate. And just a disclaimer right from the get-go, I am a hopeful universalist. I would love for it to be true, but I can't actually hang my theological hat on that because we see something different in Scripture. We, we see that there's consequences, and we talked about this last week, there's consequences uh, for our behavior, for how we live, and for what we believe to be true. But 1 Timothy 2, verse 2 to 6 says this, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for those in authorities, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So universalism basically says that God gets what he wants. I believe that God wants all people to be saved, to be in a saving relationship with him. But universalism is predicated on the belief that God is all-powerful and God gets what he wants. And we, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, which we'll return to in a second, is that God's power uh, is yielded to his essence and his character, which is love. And that has implications for the question or the statement that we're looking at today. There's another, 
just as a way of contrast, there's another group that believes something completely different, but it has the same foundation, and that's divine determinism. This is where God chooses who goes to hell, who goes to heaven, who's saved, and who isn't. Divine determinism is trying to account for the realities and the consequences that they see in Scripture while holding on to the tension that God is all-powerful. And so if God is all-powerful and there's, there's actually realities to how we live and what we believe, then it must mean that God intended some to be saved and others not to be saved. And I can't believe or put my trust in universal or divine determinism because they're both actually saying the same thing. They're different sides to the same coin. They both say, they both are trying to answer the question, does God get what he wants? And they both say, yes, he does. They just disagree on what God wants. Do you guys see that? They just disagree on what, what God wants. You know, I... I I celebrate with the heart of universalism because I believe that is the heart of God for all people to come to a saving relationship with Him. But we have to acknowledge when we look at Scripture that God might not get what He wants. I know this sounds like sacrilegious. God doesn't get what He wants. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the illustration or the example of how I'm more powerful than my children for now. There will be a time when they overpower me. But for now, I'm more powerful than, than them. But that is different than being, uh, all, being all powerful over them is different than being all controlling. That I don't have control over my kids at least half the time. And I could force my kids to do a lot of things, but I don't do that. Why? Because there's something greater at play in our relationship than my power. What is at play in my relationship with my kids is love, is a relationship. And I believe that when God created the world, he created the opportunity for relationship. And that opportunity was more important than, to him than him exercising his all-controlling power. He didn't want to create robots. He wanted to create people to be in relationship with him. He created us with a choice. This is the choice that we saw in the garden. Why would God put the tree in the middle of the garden? Why would he do that? God was creating a garden, an environment, not just to have robots, but to have beings that he was in relationship with. And when I married my wife, Lisa, as, much of, as many of you would, would like to think that I forced her to marry me, it's not true. <laughs> she actually said yes. And why is that important? Because unless she said yes, you would say that is not a healthy relationship. Am I, am I right? It takes two people to say yes to a relationship to make it a relationship. Otherwise, it's called abuse. It's called a dictatorship. A relationship takes two. And I believe that's why universalism, divine determinism, ultimately don't actually get to the heart of God because God's heart was that he created us for relationship with him. And with that comes the opportunity 
for us to choose. With that comes the opportunity for us to do things that are hurtful to him and to others and to ourselves. So I think universalism is, is one way that, that people nowadays try and deal with the religious buffet. I think uh, the second way is religious dogmatism. What do I mean by that? I mean that people, if, if modernity was about certainty and rules and predictability and the world is moving towards post-modernity and post-truth, this is really scary for many people. And their response is to actually go back and cling to modernity cling to certainty, cling to things that we know are true, things that, like, let me use one example. Uh, if I believe in a, a literal six-day creation or not, for many people that difference means I'm saved or I'm not. That's an example of religious dogmatism trying to grab hold of certainty. In, in the modern era, when we came out of it, we, we actually started looking at the Bible as a scientific textbook. And when I went to Bible college, we learned how to, you know, a historical, grammatical approach to reading Scripture. If we could just understand the history, the context, the grammar, uh, you know, and, and not that I think that those things are unimportant, because if you've heard me teach, you know I often go to the grammar, I go to history, or I go to context, because those things are vitally important. But at the end of the day, the Bible is not a textbook. I believe the written word was given to us to point to the living word, which is Jesus, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Religious dogmatism. This is my, this is my favorite cup at my house. Most mornings when I don't sleep in, I get up and I make a cup of coffee in this cup, and I sit in the same chair, and I read my Bible and I journal in the same chair with this cup. Uh, and I don't know why, I think it just, it fits my, my coffee amount perfectly. Um, and it doesn't have a handle, so it's very hot and warm to the hands, but that's nice because my wife leaves the, my, our house really, really cold. So I need, I need to heat up in the morning. But if you brought me this cup, and I love this cup, and, let, and let's say I was thirsty, and in my cup there was water in it, and I received it and I said, Thank you for the water. And I just started doing this. Ah, I, I love this cup. This is amazing. This is, this, and I just started licking it. You'd say, what are you doing? Is anybody wondering what I'm doing right now? What are you doing? Ultimately, Christianity, the religion, was meant to hold something. And religious dogmatism says, you know, the, cu the cup is the point. Uh, this is quenching my thirst so well. I, uh, and you say, that's crazy. That's crazy. What was the cup meant to hold? Religious people tend to focus on the cup and forget about the contents. Some cups have handles. You're like, I actually prefer a cup with handles. I prefer a cup with flowers. And we all have preferences on you know, exactly what version of the cup we like, but at the end of the day, the cup is actually irrelevant. 
Whenever we, have think, whenever we think we found the cup, we should probably throw it away because we've already confused the contents with the container. If I stopped drinking out of this and I just started licking it every morning, you would say, you, you should probably get rid of that thing. You, you, you're missing the point. See, the Bible tells a story about a time when God used a statue of a snake to help generate faith among, among his people. Poisonous snakes were attacking the Israelites and many were dying. They prayed to God to remove the snakes, but instead he came up with a more creative plan a plan to rescue them. He could have just healed everyone on his own, but as God typically does, he chooses to partner with people in how he does things. So what happened? The Lord told him, talking to Moses, make a replica of the poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of a bronze out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. So God had Moses make the statue. If people would look at it in faith, they would be healed. The statue was God's idea. Right? No? The statue was God's It's not a trick question. Yes. The statue was God's idea, right? Yes. I know some of you guys are like, is this a trick question? Uh, no. But yet... Later in the Bible, we read this. He removed the pagan shrines, smashed the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nahushtan. See, people became enamored with the statue of the serpent that they started worshiping it rather than worshiping God who had given it to them. What was meant to be a gift from God had actually become an idol. Instead of worshiping God, they started worshiping the form his power took at one point in their lives. They were, luck, they, were, they were licking the cup. This is what the bronze serpent became. And they named it Nashutan. And they began sacrificing to it. So you might be thinking, Matt, so do you believe that all religions lead to God then? No, I don't, because I don't believe that any religion leads to God. I don't think that Jesus came to start a religion. I don't think Jesus came to give us a cup. Call it a cup. Call it Nahushtan. Call it Christianity. Call it whatever you want. Call it religion. Jesus didn't come to start that. The Christian faith is the phenomenon of people following Jesus. Christian religion is the phenomenon of people following the phenomenon of people following Jesus. Jesus invites us to himself. This is what it says in John chapter 3. And Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone, what does it say? Who believes... In him will have eternal life. What John is saying here is what the serpent pointed to, Jesus fulfilled. What your religion pointed to was Jesus. What your Bible points to is Jesus. Jesus is the water in the cup. Jesus says, if anybody drinks the water that I give, they'll never be thirsty again. It's all about Jesus. And if your Christianity does not lead you to follow Jesus, then you need to throw it away because that's not why Jesus came. 
So right after this, here's the famous verse that many of us know. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So who is this talking about? Who's, who's the one and only son? It's Jesus. Who's, who's saying this? talking. Where do we get this idea? From Jesus. Seems a little egotistical, doesn't it? You know, we're going to look at a verse in a second where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's like, that sounds a little egotistical, doesn't it? See, many people say they like Jesus. They like the teaching of Jesus. You know, the, the whole idea of serve others, love others, forgive others. Look out for the least of these. Look after orphans and widows. Like, people love the teachings of Jesus, but if you actually pay attention to the teachings of Jesus, he's an egotistical maniac. Because not only does he have this whole humble serve others thing, he also has this whole I'm God, the way, the truth, and the life thing. It's like, it's, we go back to the buffet. Let's not listen to that part of Jesus. We like this part. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this. He, he says, uh, you, you have three options with Jesus. You can believe that he's a liar. He didn't tell the truth. He's a lunatic. Or he's Lord. He's, he's one of those three things. But the whole idea of he's a good teacher, that, that option isn't actually available to you. Because he's actually insane. If he's just a good teacher, you would listen to, you know, if I came up to you and says, you know, guys, I'm, I'm the way to God. You have to go through me. You'd say, You'd write me off. You'd say, you're crazy. But that's the type of thing that Jesus said. And this is why people end up rejecting Jesus. Not because of his life, not because of some of the good things he teaches, but because of the exclusive statement that he gives that I am the way, the truth, and life. Whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. That sounds so exclusive, doesn't it? Well, is it exclusive or is it inclusive? Interestingly, some people react to this teaching by tripping over this exclusivity. Who is Jesus to suggest that we have to believe in him to have eternal life? But when viewed in, the, in context, we see that Jesus, in that situation, is talking to a religious leader, a man whose ethnic origin is part and parcel with his religious identity. This is a man who is waiting for the Jewish Messiah to vindicate the Jewish people by fighting against the Roman oppressors, that he would come and deliver them, that Jews would be elevated and delivered from the Roman oppressors, except Jesus comes in John 3.16 and says, everyone, whosoever, we're coming into the Christmas season, and there's this, there's this, this announcement when Jesus is born, it says, the angels had announced Jesus' birth, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Good news of great joy for all people. You may or may not agree with Jesus' teaching, but let's try and understand things from Jesus' perspective. And I think understanding what Jesus is saying comes from where we, the perspective we choose to look at it from. If we look at it from our perspective... Sometimes we think, well, this sounds exclusive. Particularly if you don't believe in the diagnosis that Jesus came to bring. 
So last week we talked quite a, quite a bit about sinfulness. And understanding the inclusivity of Jesus' message will depend on your agreement with his diagnosis to the, regarding the state of the world and yourself. If you believe that I'm a good person, that there's not really anything wrong with me, there's not really anything wrong with this world, then you will listen to Jesus' claims from your perspective and you'll think that's exclusive. But if we believe in what the Bible tells us and that we have a sin problem, we have a brokenness problem, we have been cracked image bearers of God that cannot heal ourselves, when we look at the world and we, and we can say all creation is groaning for God to redeem creation and his sons and daughters, if we can look at what the Bible says and say, I agree with that, then we would look at the claims of Jesus and we say, this is the most inclusive message that the world has ever heard. Think of it this way. You're trapped in a well. And Jesus comes and says, he, he, he gives you a rope to get out of the well. You say, I don't want to take that rope out of the well. That's too exclusive. That would be crazy. But it's craziness if you don't actually, it doesn't sound crazy if you don't believe in your well, but, but, but if you do believe that you're stuck in a well and Jesus says, I'm going to give you a way out and he doesn't discriminate, it's for everybody, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, Greek or Drew, Jew or Drew, uh, <laughs> it's for Drew too. For every person, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter if you're young, it doesn't matter if you're old, it doesn't matter if you are a Nobel Prize winner, it doesn't matter if you are a serial killer, whosoever believes in Jesus receives eternal life. It doesn't matter who you are. The only difference is, do you, do you, do you actually believe and see that you're stuck in a well and that we need help that cannot come from ourselves? And as soon as we can come to that place of understanding, then the message of Jesus is the most inclusive message that the world has ever heard. It doesn't matter who you are this morning. It doesn't matter where you come from. Jesus does not discriminate. Whosoever. And so we get to this word believe, and it's like, well, what does that even mean? Did, you know, so, so what I'm saying this morning is it does matter what you believe. But what does that word be believe mean? For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What does that word believe mean? Belief is not what you think. <coughs> Belief is not what you think. We have a noun in the Greek language and it's, it's the word pistis. Everybody say pistis. So pistis means faith. And faith, this, this whole idea around pistis means trust, putting your weight into something. It, it means faith and faithful. It, it means both of those things together. It means trust and trustworthiness. It means I have faith, I have trust that Jesus is trustworthy. I have faith that Jesus is faithful. I am going to put my weight onto this because I believe it will hold me. I'm afraid of heights. I'm terrified of heights because I, I get on things and I don't trust that it's going to hold me. So this is far different than the idea of belief, intellectual belief. 
intellectual certitude. Because when we get to the verb form of this word, pistuo, everybody say pistuo. It's the same word as pistis, which is the noun. Pistuo is the verb of pistis. Pistuo does not mean believe. In fact, there's no Greek word in your Bible that says believe. In our English translations, we translate a believe because we don't have a verb for faith. Pistuo actually means faithing. So is Jesus saying whoever believes all these right doctrines about me is, is going to be saved? Is that, what, is that what he's saying? Whoever attends church regularly, whoever believes in this certain theology, in this way, in this cup, is going to receive eternal life. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying whoever faiths me, whoever trusts me, whoever orients their life around me, whoever puts their weight into me instead of themselves or anybody else will be saved. Whoever realizes that they're stuck and they cannot help themselves and there's this inclusive invitation to grab hold of something, regardless of what doubts you have, because faith is not certitude. Let me pause it for a second. Doubt is only an issue if you believe that faith equals certitude. Some of you have some doubts about God. That does not stop you from putting faith into God. And I'm a pastor, and I have lots of doubts. I know you probably don't want to hear that, so go to another church where the pastor's more certain of everything. I, I have lots of doubts, but I know one thing's for sure is that I don't trust myself, and I trust Jesus more than anybody else. That's faith. So Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you had you would have known who my Father is. For now on, you do know him and you have seen him. See, Jesus is the way to God. Because why? Because Jesus is God. Religion is all of the things that we do to try and get to God, all the belief systems we have that we've tried to figure out so we can get into a relationship with God. Jesus is God who became human to come to us. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Because Jesus is God himself that came to us, that invited us into relationship with him. And he says, you can't actually get to God any other way except through me, because I am God. Jesus doesn't tell you you need to go to church more. You need to believe the right doctrines. You need to find the purest form of Christianity. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say the way is certain certain religious rituals or behaviors. Jesus doesn't say that truth is an idea. Jesus doesn't say that the way to life, eternal life, is a belief system. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, the life. Don't miss this. Truth is not an idea. Truth is a person. The way is not a religion. The way is a person. True life is not found in anything else other than the person of God because God was the one. He is the essence of life that created life. How do you... How, how, how do we expect to live unless we are abiding with the source of life? So Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And the enemy comes and he tries to twist it. Did God really say 
That sounds really exclusive, doesn't it? The enemy wants to twist it and make you think that this is the most exclusive thing in the world when it's actually the most inclusive thing the world has ever heard, that God came to us and he does not discriminate. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done. The gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus, the invitation to life is for you. So I believe that Jesus came to save atheists. Jesus came to save Muslims. He came to save Hindus. He came to save Mormons. And he came to save Christians. Jesus did not come to start a religion. And some of us actually need to be saved from Christianity because we've put faith in a cup rather than a person. I'm going to invite you to stand. If belief means complete certitude, then I think the statement's right, that it doesn't matter what you believe, because I don't think you're ever going to find that. If belief means faith and trust, and actually recognizing the diagnosis that Jesus gives us that everybody is sick and needs a doctor, everybody needs healing. Doesn't matter how bad you are, how good you are, we're all invited to the same thing. And it does matter what you believe. It does matter that we put our faith, our trust, our weight into Jesus. Because He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life. I'm going to invite you to, to close your eyes this morning. And I think there's some people in the room this morning that have struggled with certitude and you, you, you're like, I don't know if I can believe in Jesus because I have these questions and these doubts. And Jesus isn't telling you to ignore those doubts, but he's, he's saying, do you trust me more than your own certitude? If you're in that place this morning, you think, I've trusted my own intellect more than I've trusted Jesus. I just want to invite you to raise your hand this morning. I want to pray for you in a moment. I've trusted my own intellect more than I've trusted Jesus. Thank you. Maybe you're in a place this morning where you felt like the invitation of Jesus is way too exclusive. And you've actually believed the lie of the enemy who's tried to convince you that Jesus is too exclusive. And the Holy Spirit's actually come this morning and he's challenging you and he's saying, this is the most inclusive message in the history of the world. And, I, and God's actually inviting you just to repent of that thought this morning. And repent just simply means change direction. I'm going to choose to stop seeing everything from the perspective of exclusivity and choose to see it from the perspective of Jesus that came to save all people. If that's you this morning, you say, I need to actually reject that thought, and I'm going to embrace the inclusivity of Jesus this morning. Put up your hand. If you're someone who desires to begin this relationship with God, to experience His eternal life both today and forever, I would invite you to make that step this morning, not based on figuring it all out, but based on a step of faith and belief 
that I'm going to choose to trust Jesus more than I trust myself. And if you're, you know, with their eyes closed, if you're someone this morning that wants to take that step for maybe the very first time, I invite you to just raise your hand. Jesus, I want to follow you. Thank you. This morning, we, uh, after service, we have our starting point. As Chris mentioned, uh, week one, we're looking at knowing God. What does it mean to know God? How do I grow in my relationship with God? And starting point is designed for anyone who wants to engage in this faith journey or anyone who's uh, wanting to know more about SunWest. And in, in four weeks, uh, we teach about God, we teach about who we are as a church, and then give you opportunity to get plugged in and involved in a variety of ways uh, throughout those four weeks. So we invite you uh, to stick around for starting point after service. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you do not discriminate. And Lord, I, I repent of when I when I take things and I make them into religious systems and ideas that uh, are actually, I, I've mistaken the cup from the living water. Lord, I get that wrong often. And Lord, I pray that we would be overwhelmed with the good news that you have come for all people. And we would respond to the invitation personally to put our trust and our faith into you, not because we figured everything out, but because we recognize that you are more trustworthy than us. That we believe in the mystery that God came to earth in the form of a human. And that is worth us putting all of our faith and trust into you. Because what other option do we have? You are the way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.